0: Edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is podcast number 166. One, six, six. So, um, as always, if you have any questions or comments, and I welcome them both, uh, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com. That is kbmakel at aol.com. Or you can leave them in the comments section on Podbean, where you can find this podcast, among other places. Okay, let's get down to it. Of course, I'm not going to talk much about it, but the Trump indictment, uh, you can get analysis on that anywhere to see how weird, wrong, and, and what a double standard of law that it actually is. But what you should ask yourself is, is this the country you want to live in? The double standard of justice? the politicalization of the the injustice department you know it's only a matter of time before the irs and the batf are used to do this too and they're coming after i mean who's ever controlling biden and i don't think it's this bumbling old man that can't even stay on his feet uh they they're they're pulling out all the stops so you have to ask yourself what country do you want to live in and do you want to tolerate this nonsense i think it's horrid um but you can get better. There's all kinds of, of analysis out there, and you can get better than than hearing me rant and rave about it. But what kind of country do you want? Is we just had the uh, 79th anniversary of D-Day, and is this what we sacrificed for? Is this what the great is this what the greatest generation sacrificed for? a politicized, weaponized, and I will say criminalized Justice Department. Yes, Justice Department are criminals. And um, as soon as we can get these people out of office, and I hope 2024 is the year, uh, we need to hold uh, basically a a national set of trials and put all these people on trial. And, uh, you know, when their guilt is exposed, they need to go to prison. And I don't mean the white-collar, nice prison. I mean like Pelican Bay prison. Because that's what they actually deserve. They deserve to go to the hardest prisons in the country. People who know better. They have distorted and perverted and criminalized the rule of law. And they should pay for it. Uh, The next thing is this. And I don't know what to make of it. The Ukrainian counter-offensive. Uh, as you probably know terrain-wise if you follow if you've been following any of this there was not a big period of frozen ground in the in the winter where you know you can fight over it. Ukraine is a big mud ball big mud bath uh, a couple times out of the year in the spring and in the fall. Um, it can be very very muddy there and to the point where you know tanks sink up to their hull and in the bottom and the tops of their treads and everything so maneuver warfare is very difficult which is why we've been seeing the static world war one style fighting you know they're even digging trenches over there they're fighting in trenches it looks more like world war one than it looks like anything else um so the ground is now hardening up and apparently there is now a counter-offensive um, it looks pretty bumbling to me usually in the opening phases of a counteroffensive, they make tremendous progress. And then it gradually culminates, and you have, you know, it, it peters out. It culminates. Okay, it stops. But they, they've usually made significant progress. This doesn't seem to be making very good progress at all, if any. Uh, There's just little tiny territorial shifts. And those could be relocations to more defensible terrain. I mean, we, we don't know. Uh, it appears that a whole bunch of the new Leopard, what are they, Leopard A2s, yeah, A2 Leopard tanks, um, a bunch of those got schwacked, and a bunch of uh, Bradleys that we gave the Ukrainians got swacked. I mean, the pictures are all over the internet of these things. Tracks are, are off them. And they've obviously taken um, hits from, from anti-tank weapons. So there's no way those are going to ever be repaired because effectively there's no depot-level maintenance that could fix those things in Ukraine. So I guess we gave them 104 of them and like 16 of them are gone. So um, about 15% of their Bradleys are gone. That's just the ones we know of. There could be more. They could be down 20%, which means that uh, you have to give them a whole lot of Bradleys at that rate. Uh, you know, this is becoming a, a war of attrition. There's no end in sight. It does not look like there's going to be a lot of maneuver. Now, some of, the other, some of the other people who look at this think that the Russians are just waiting, biding their time. They're going to let the Ukrainians grind themselves against the Russian defensive lines and then Russia will la- launch an offensive or a counter counter offensive of its own um... that could very well be it could very well be that they're doing that uh... one thing that people aren't laughing at though and you heard it here first is that uh... they're starting to see some articles that the uh, t-55 isn't as hapless as people think that as a mobile artillery platform or as what we use tank destroyers for in world war ii a gun carriage um those things are uh, are relatively effective you know if you need a gun to knock something down or knock something out you bring up one of those and it's got a hundred millimeter gun and it, it can hit something outside of the most modern main battle tanks it'll take out anything that it can see so um you know they're not as ineffective as ever, and it's not the laughingstock people thought it was um it is an anachronism that a tank from 1954 1955 whatever it is um would be on a battlefield today but I will also tell you that you know you if you look around there especially in the early days you saw Moyes and the Gantz those go back to 1891 um you know look look at how good a weapon the M1 Garand is the M1 rifle um, so look look what a good weapon it is and that's 80 some years old now it's it's almost 90 cuz they adopted it i think in 36 or 37 they were developing it before then so certainly the development models would were 90 years ago now if you were in the 1960s say 1965 and you had a rifle from the Civil War period—that um, would be considered pretty, uh, you know, pretty out of date. But technology has kind of slowed down, and the M1 is as good as it ever was. And same thing with the T55; it's as good as it ever was. Just because there are better tanks out there, does not mean that the T55 is a bad tank. It's actually a very good tank, and. Um, Millions of them were built, and uh, there's still thousands in depots around the Soviet Union, the old Soviet Union, and Russia can get their hands on those. So expect to see them for quite some time. Uh, This is all in the backdrop of what is happening in the U.S. military. And if you've looked around, you've noticed there have been some very, very serious things happening. Um they finally showed some backbone and showed what tough guys they are by outlawing drag queen shows on military bases as if that ever should have been anything that was proffered um you know i I, I think they the certainly the chief of staff of the army, if it's on an army base or or the other services, their chiefs uh, should if you heard that you know fort Belvoir. Virginia is got a hosting a drag queen show. I would pull the commander of that base in, the senior man on that base, and say, "Did you authorize this?" And when they said yes, I would say, "I'm sorry, you're relieved of command. I've lost trust in you." Clearly, this is poor judgment. Clearly, this is this is just egregious. So, uh, until we start doing that, it, it, there should never have been a need for a Department of Defense order outlawing these things the commanders at every level should say no we know this is this is not what we want and and it never should have even uh, it's, it's it's a bad idea that everyone should have recognized A couple other developments uh, you notice the the army is buying a new light infantry squad carrier now I was light infantry for a while so the squad carriers we had were called LPCs, which is Leather Personnel Carrier, which were our boots. Um, the The problem with light infantry is everything that can carry you around is very vulnerable. And these new vehicles, which kind of look like a dune buggy, they're based on the Chevy Colorado. Um, they're very vulnerable. They'll They'll never use them. They wouldn't use anything like that in Iraq. You wouldn't use anything like that in a non-permissive environment unless you're willing to accept that when one of these things get blown up, so do the um, eight or ten guys who are, who are clinging on to this thing. There's no protection on it. once It has no roof, no doors. It's just some sort of mobility platform. I mean, it'll be fine for peacetime and apparently in the exercises where they've tried to use them, uh, they're, they're detected and neutralized very quickly. So, what, what good are these things? Um, I do not know Uh, it's perplexing yes you would like to get your foot mobile infantry around the battlefield a lot faster but I don't know that that's practical with these kind of vehicles that's why they went to Bradley's and armored fighting vehicles to not only to keep up with tanks but also to provide a level of protection and firepower which this vehicle does not have the next, of course, the next uh, bump on the road is this new. What do they call it? The M5 carbine, or the M5, the 6.8 by 51. It's really a, ba- it's really a AR-10 based Battle rifle is really what it is. Um, if you're a civilian and you want one of those, um, get an AR-10, get a, get it chambered in. 277 fury and uh hey, you know you're you pretty much there um supposedly there's two types of ammo some is like super high pressure and, and yeah okay whatever whatever all that is um you know i don't know i don't see we're adopting a battle rifle based on experience in Iraq and Afghanistan is a particularly good idea because you're going to wind up in the jungle next time and they're going to say, well, we don't need this. We need the M4s back. Um, you know, it, it's, it just seems to be that they, there's no real direction on where it's going. And, and that's most evident in the Marine Corps, where apparently there's a secret organization of retired Marine Corps senior officers who are saying what the current and incoming commandant of the Marine Corps were doing was wrong and that is getting rid of tanks getting rid of their conventional force structure so that they can kind of be island defenders against China in the Pacific it's it's weird it's strange And fortunately there are apparently a few adults in the room left in the room who see that as bad Um, that needs to turn around Um, that needs to turn around if you're a small service like the Marines and there's a hundred and seventy seven thousand Marines it's not very many Um, you need high firepower you need maximum firepower Um, everything they buy should be a force multiplier making the marine force more lethal than its size making it expanding its lethality not getting rid of things that they need like tanks oh and and of course now the army is getting the booker fighting vehicle the booker fighting vehicle is I I don't know what it is it's kind of like the old 551 Sheridan it's a it's an aluminum-hulled, um, turreted vehicle with a 105-millimeter gun. So it's got an obsolete tank gun on basically a poorly armored chassis. But I guess we can move it everywhere, just like the old 551, which uh, in Vietnam was called the plastic tank because it uh, it did not it could not sustain a lot of battle damage before being knocked out which if you're inside it is a very very bad thing that's a very very bad trait for your vehicle to have I I question the need for this if we already have striker vehicles those wheeled things that are uh, this yeah I, I just don't I just don't get it why would we buy something we've tried this concept before and it didn't work very well at the end of World War II we had all these we had all these things they were called tank destroyers and they weren't a bad thing. But in the assessment at the end of the war, everybody said, look, we're using these things as proxy tanks. So we may as well just have a regular tank that does this. We don't need a lightly armored inferior tank. We need to develop a good tank, and we'll just use that for everything. And that's eventually what they, what they did. And that was the genesis of the main battle tank was hey it's this all-around vehicle it fights other tanks it can support the infantry it can move fast even the cavalry units can use it Um, that's that's where the main battle tank kind of came from so you don't have these these lightweight vehicles Um, 105 millimeter gun is not a bad gun and again it's kind of like kind of like the t-55 sort of deal um, where you know most of the things it's gonna run into on the battlefield it can kill quite easily maybe the most modern battle tanks it it will have a hard time with a harder time with but it could still get a mobility kill it could still knock out a a turret or something it it could still damage it but it's not it doesn't have the uh, killing power that the hundred and twenty millimeter gun on the M1 I guess it's a three now Abrams has so uh, we have to we have to basically uh, understand we're, we're, we have, and I suppose part of this is just strategic lift and mobility, but we have hundreds, if not a couple of thousand tanks sitting at the Sierra Army Depot. Um, we ought to use those first. We ought to give some back to the Marines and tell them they, they need to use these. I mean, we, we need to do this, making things lighter, weaker, and more vulnerable is probably not the way we need to go so that's the ukrainian counter-offensive and the kind of how that's covering some of the strange things that are happening here uh let's talk a little bit about one of my favorite subjects about 20 25 years ago that's when you first started hearing talk of reparations and reparations Uh, was basically saying well you know you had ancestors in slavery they never really got paid for what they did so you're owed something now be it that it was 150 years ago you know there you go the other side of the coin is now they're saying well your ancestors were slaves and they never got paid for it and everybody in between them and now has been a victim of institutional racism which they really can't define, to my satisfaction, anyway. So therefore, you're owed something. And they've come up with all kinds of things. I think the one in California was like $1.2 million. Okay, and even even the really diehard liberals like Gavin Newsom, just they see that number and they realize it's impossible. Cannot be done. Absolutely cannot be done. Uh, even if we went into overtime printing money, all that would do is cause massive inflation, and then the 1.2 million dollars wouldn't be worth very much. So you know, you, the United States cannot afford reparations. We should not pay reparations because, frankly, it was 150 years ago. You know, you can't you can't make that right, and if you do that. This would only open the door to every other group that would say, I'm an aggrieved group, whether they're American Indians, whether they're someone else. They can say, we've been the victims of this stuff too. We we just can't pay everybody for being who they are and what their history is. Can't do it. It also goes against the tenet of looking ahead. It's like, you know, we should be looking ahead and the real reparations are and have been opportunity education things like that so you know where does why am I even talking about reparations well if you thought you saw riots with George Floyd you better hang on to your hat because as soon as these people figure out they're not getting anything and after everybody telling them that they're hey you're owed like how would you feel if somebody said yeah you're owed 1.2 million dollars but we just haven't got the cash to give it to you Um, You'd say, man, that sounds like BS, man. Somebody's got to have the cash. And people who, you know, when you say that to a large group of people, there are going to be some people who are violent. They're going to say, we're going to go out and take it. And I mean, look at all the thievery that's happening now. Stores are closing like crazy because of the thievery. And we can't do anything about it. So if you think that there's going to be no riots, that people just say, yeah, aw, shucks. Yep, yeah, we're owed all this money for reparations but can't get any of it too bad it's not going to be too bad it's going to be what can we burn down next and that could be coming to a town or a neighborhood near you um, again i've said this before and i'll say it again right now ammo is available it's reasonably priced AR style rifles, if you can get one, if you live in a place where you can get one, which is fortunately still most of the country, they are reasonably priced. They've come way down. Don't wait till it's too late. Get it. Practice with it. Stack away some ammo because you may need it. You know, I've said it so many times before. You saw it in St. Louis. When that guy was out on his lawn with an AR 15, nobody bothered to come up on that lawn. I realize he got all kinds of legal trouble and everything else but basically at that time in that window at that place nobody was willing to cross him so reparations could be the next big thing that fuels violence and it's going to be directed at you it's going to be directed right at you and so Unfortunately, there are not a lot of people who can say anything without being called Uncle Toms or or the blackface of white supremacy, some of this other nonsense that has been used. Uh, You can't talk sense to these people. Um, There's no no great spokesman who's going to come up and say, hey, no, this is wrong, can't do it. It, They're just not going to be believed. They're going to be dismissed out of hand. Like I said, called Uncle Tom's and and everything else. So there you are. Okay, now it's time for one of my favorite things. I've gotten some comments on low-number Springfield receivers again. So again, I will I will try to explain this maybe a little better than last time. Um, what I'm going to say is, I think, and this came to me. You know, Major General Julian Hatcher, who was probably the most brilliant... Next to John Browning, he was the most brilliant firearms guy in the country, you know. Uh, Browning was a great designer, but Hatcher understood weapons. I mean, he understood the stuff. He, he knew exactly what he was talking about. He spoke with authority. Uh, he was enough of a scientist, enough of an officer, enough of a lot of things so that he could figure out problems and come up with solutions. Remember, he's the guy who went down to the Mexican border and straightened out the Benet Mercier machine guns that we foolishly bought from France. We bought the design from France. Uh, it turned out to be it wasn't a very good machine gun. It had all kinds of problems. But he went down there and threw a training regiment, got them so that they were serviceable. And, and they, they worked out. They weren't ideal, but they at least they worked out. Uh, he's also a guy who was an early supporter of Grand. You know, he knew he knew rifles. He knew weapons. I think he'd be shocked and, and frankly amazed that 100 years after discovering the problem with the low-number Springfields, instituting a fix that we would still be talking about them and debating them a hundred years later I think he'd be amazed at that but let me just go through real quick okay Um, most springfields were made with carbon steel okay later they went to nickel steel in the 1920s but but most of them were carbon steel the carbon steel was good steel the problem was, it was some of the first million rifles were heat-treated inconsistently. Some were fine, apparently. Some were not so fine, apparently. Um, and everybody's been debating on what that percentage is. But the fact of the matter is, they were inconsistent. And you cannot, there's no way to figure it out. There's no way to look at one and figure out if it's good or bad. That is the crux of the problem. The bad ones we know uh, between like 1917 and 1929, in service, there were reported blowups. Three guys lost eyes. Some other people, you know, got minor injuries. Some people got no injuries at all. So, um, but they knew that these things were having a problem. Soma, and it was such a problem that in the middle of a world war, where every rifle was needed. Incredibly, every rifle was desperately needed. Um, effectively, they ceased production to come up with a remedy. That tells you the problem was serious. That tells you the problem was very serious. So they, they figured it out and then they instituted double heat treating. They did that for a while, then they uh, converted to nickel steel in the, the 1920s. They also found out that the bolts, which they were single heat treating, had the same problem because they were doing it by eyeball that in the receivers they were doing it by eyeball and when they used pyrometers they figured out that on different lighting on cloudy days and sunshiny days they could make real mistakes and sometimes burn the steel um, steel that is burned has a large grain structure and it cracks and breaks easily so they they had problems with these things and uh, they figured out and got the deal. Now, for a long time, when these rifles would come back to the to the depots to be rebuilt or the arsenals to be rebuilt, um, what they would do is they would just they take them all down to the they take them all completely apart. The good parts are put in the bins so they can be reused. The bad parts are thrown away, and the receivers were thrown away. And just that just happened. Low number of receivers were thrown away. Well, it, it, obviously, the economics of that started to play a part where you can't throw these things away. You've you got a million rifles. So they said, we'll put them in war reserve. In case there's an emergency, we'll use them again. Um, so that's what they did. The Marines never took theirs out of service. They figured, hey, if it's, if it's there, it's there. They, ne- they never followed the Army's um, suggestion now part of that is because uh, there there was a different attitude towards soldiers a different attitude towards injuries a different attitude so that if it blew up people would and and it hurt you and yeah, people wouldn't necessarily want to see that but they look at it as part of the cost the cost of war if you will or the cost of military service something that we would not tolerate now so anyway the, the crux of the matter is they, they know that there were about 60, 70 of these things that, that had blown up um, there was actually even a guy named Lyon and he you can find it something Lyon, P-H-D you know, L-Y-O-N and it's on the 1903.com site where he basically says st- statistically they were so insignificant low number receiver rifles are, are safe because it's it's just the chance of it happening are just so small okay that's that's so flawed that i'm not going to spend a lot of time on it but the reason it's flawed is number 1 just cuz they stopped reporting them in 1929 didn't mean that they stopped failing that's just when those are just the reported ones they had there could have been others that weren't reported um there could have been some that failed afterwards that they said hey look we already know this problem we've we've got the fix in um the newer rifles are coming out a lot better so therefore why keep records why why worry about this so we have no idea how many failed how many were unreported during the reporting period that hatcher covers we have no idea how many failed afterwards we have no idea how many failed in foreign service we have no idea how many fa- because we did we did pump these things out um, and give them to we gave them to Turkey we gave them to the Philippines we probably gave some to China mainly I, you know we gave them to people we gave these things uh, out we gave out low number rifles especially after World War II we gave a, we gave them to every ally that needed rifles right away we also have no idea how many failed when they tried to rebarrel them in the uh, arsenals and armory. We have no idea because they didn't keep records, so we don't know. We also don't know how many failed in civilian hands, and we know that there are some that did because we have the stories of them. We also don't know how many failed in kind of the quasi-military use, and I say that because I've seen this. I saw a 1903 Springfield that failed as a drill rifle. It got, sl- you know, they with the drill, they, they slam them on the ground, um, and it snapped the receiver rail on the right side of the receiver. Snapped it. You know, heard a tink snap. <laughs> it was it. And this this rifle had a hatcher hole, which meant that it was. Rebarrel after 1938-1939 during World War II they drilled that hatcher hole which was a gas vent hole in the uh, left side of the receiver so this this rifle had been through a couple of barrels maybe it was a 1909 rifle Uh, so it had probably been maybe been through two barrels who knows been through proof firing all of this and it failed Uh, they had some that failed with guard cartridges okay those were you know kind of some bullseye powder on top of a lead ball that they would just fire to shoot at pests and things like that Um, some failed with that so there's no there's no pattern of failure some have failed very catastrophically cracked across the receiver bridges and the lug area a lot of the ones the ones I'm most familiar with have failed on the receiver rails some have had the recoil lugs fail uh, we have no idea how many thousands of these have failed and even even logan metish who's you know kind of this uh, gun tuber kind of up-and-coming guy he went and this is in 2021 he went and bought an early rock island 1903 rifle and he took a his was from i i can't recall the date But it's a fairly low serial number, so maybe it's 1908, maybe it's 1910, I don't know. But anyway, he went and took that, and as he started to clean it, and he doesn't really say, but I think his intent was on firing it, um, he saw two, not one, but two cracks in the receiver. Now, his rifle had a hatcher hole, which meant it had been through the armory rebuild process you know either just before or during the second world war and got a new got a new barrel probably got new whatever new parts the receiver was old but the receiver had failed so it had it had lasted for a while and then it has failed Um, we just have no idea when and how these things will fail but we do know one thing we actually saying how is is incorrect we don't know which part of the receiver will fail but we do know when they do fail they break they shatter and there are stories and there are some you know you can search this on the internet there are stories of gunsmiths trying to rebarrel a 1903 rifle whether it's has been sporterized or not and the uh... the receiver will fall from the bench hit a concrete floor and break Okay. So when they fail, they tend to shatter like glass, whereas double heat treat or nickel steel will deform. And anything can make, not anything, but any receiver can be made to fail. Any receiver can fail. There are, there are other Springfield receivers that have failed, but it's how they fail. Shattering is much more dangerous to the shooter than deforming. Not that any of them are good. But some are worse than others. So that's the that's the crux of the problem there. We just don't know how many have failed. And people are trying to... You know, and if I had power, and if anybody had the power, it would be great to wave a magic wand and make them all better again. But you can't. You have to accept the fact the low number 1903 rifles can and apparently still do fail. And um, trying to use logic. Now, they've come out with, they find these letters, and I don't know if they're authentic or not. I assume they are, but I don't know. Where some, it's a lieutenant colonel writing on behalf of Springfield Armory in the early 1950s, hey, low number, serial number rifles are safe. Um, there's a British proof house one saying, yes, low number serial number uh, springfield rifles are safe. They've been fired. They've been through all this. That is all malarkey. None of that. No no piece of paper is going to make your receiver safe. It can't. There's, there's, no, there's no way that a piece of paper makes a receiver safe. It didn't make Logan Medish's receiver safe, did it? Uh, Another another thing is, well, if it has a hatcher hole, you know, it's less prone to fail. And that's not true. The hatcher hole was designed to vent gas away from a shooter's face. It had nothing to do with the receiver as far as the receiver failing or how it failed. Um, And no hatcher hole is going to make your receiver less brittle. If you have a brittle receiver, you have a brittle receiver now I say this I have a low number Springfield in my collection I have fired it Uh, I don't fire it often as a matter of fact I fired it maybe 10 years ago and I probably will never fire it again probably that's probably what's gonna happen Uh, here's the and here's the reason why Uh, the other logic they use is: well as long as you use M2 equivalent loads or something lighter uh, your chances of it failing are gonna be very small okay well let me tell you a little story i was firing and this is thank god i was firing a 1917 rifle and i was using some fn 30-06 which was excellent ammo uh excellent ammo i think it was fn-59 or something And this is about 25 years ago so it's not like you know about 25 years off of what 1959 so it's like 40 year old ammo um, and it was firing it fine. All, but I had one round that was significantly louder than the other ones. It didn't look any different, but it was clearly an overpressure round. In a 1917 rifle, that was not a big deal because they are no, all nickel steel. It's a very strong action. It can take African game cartridges when they convert them. It was, you know, it didn't. It didn't bother the rifle at all. But had that been a low-number Springfield, who knows? So you can't always trust that your M2 loads are all completely 100% safe. And you can't use that logic. Um, that's yet another variable you have to throw in, you know. Um, these guys, are they, they try to build these logic cases to mitigate the fact that some of these rifles, the steel is too brittle. And on basically all of them, they're they're all more brittle than the double heat treat and the nickel steel guns, and you can't you can't make them unbrittle. You can't wish the problem away. So you can't always trust that the uh, that the ammunition you're firing in it is completely safe because it might be regular M2 ammo. But guess what? It's, there's one in the box there's one in the ammo can that's overloaded and it can happen and we all know especially now on the surplus market you know there's stuff coming out of Ethiopia and other places it's only a matter of time before somebody thinks they can shoot this stuff in a low number Springfield and there's a problem Um, you know I've, I've caught people doing all kinds of strange things because they think they're gonna be okay. I told you the story about, very quickly, I caught a guy with a black powder Remington pistol and one of those conversion cylinders and 45 Colt, and he was trying to put 300 grain HSM bear loads in this thing, Um, paper-thin cylinder walls, the whole thing. It would have been an absolute, Even the manufacturer of the conversion cylinder says this is for, like, light cowboy loads, not strong stuff. But there are people out there that don't think. They think if a cartridge will fit in there, it's got to be safe. Um, It's not true. And uh, be very careful with the uh, low-number springfields because they are something. I I mean, here's the the question that I ask people if they want to discuss this. I have one question I'll ask them uh, because you'll get the thing, well, I've checked it out, I've fired it, and it's good, and blah, blah, blah. Okay, would you take M2 ammunition, load it, and hand it to your wife or your child to shoot? You know, your significant other, your child, whatever, to shoot. Hand it to your mom to shoot. And I don't think that anyone who's thinking would immediately say yes. And if you won't give it to them to shoot, Should you really be shooting it? And that's the question. All right. We will now get to my favorite part of this podcast, which is questions and answers. Um, We got some interesting ones today. And uh, we'll start the first one. I was listening to a podcast. And the podcaster has a Facebook site. And on his Facebook site, he talks about the EOTech being junk that they he worked for a shooting school and EOTechs would come in and break all the time. Is this true? Uh, you know what? In, I, in preparation to this question, I actually went and I listened to the podcast and I went to this guy's Facebook page and he does say, he doesn't say it on the podcast, but he does say it there. Yeah, EOTechs are, are junk. Um, you know, they would, they would take bets on how many of them would go down in the... Um, the class, and, you know, on and on and on. Um, even, you know, even when they had the EOTech thing where, you know, they they went and had to deal with the Department of Defense because they were, you know, the zero would wander at minus 20 degrees below zero or at temperatures above 118 degrees. Okay, all that's a bunch of nonsense. I personally have the EOTech that I used in the Middle East, and it's currently on one of my ARs. It was a private purchase. There was a group purchase. A bunch of us got together, purchased it. Um, I personally have it. It is a great site. Um, does, what is the EOTech supposed to do? And, and this was an EOTech versus Aimpoint. And you know, Aimpoint has got long battery life and all that, and that's great. Uh, I know a lot of guys that ran the EOTechs and they love them. Uh, we love them because it's very easy to acquire. It's a great site. Um, you don't get tunnel vision. Aim points tend to give me tunnel vision. Um, I guess because I'm used to regular scopes. There's nothing wrong with the aim point. It's great. It's a great piece of kit. Uh, but it's down to a lot of what do you prefer. I find the eOtech is an outstanding site it is not a long range precision site so like with all of these if you've got an astigmatism and some of these other things that are uncorrected um you know you could have some wandering zero problems I mean it's same thing with an aim point aim point can do the same thing too um, I do like the fact that eotech is made here it's not like hollow sun which is made by the you know, Communist Party of Korea, or not Korea, um, China, the Chinese Communist Party, yeah, the CCP. Actually, if it was made in South Korea, I wouldn't care, because I think South Koreans make good stuff. They make a lot of good stuff. But anyway, um, you know, the EOTech is fine. You got to understand, yes, it does have about, well, I don't know what the math is, but it has a much shorter battery life um, you know frankly how bad of a deterrent is that well you know if you're using it a lot that means like every couple of weeks you're gonna switch out the battery that's just what it is um, and that gives you confidence that way you know that the batteries in there are fresh aim point can go for a long apparently a very long period of time and then all of a sudden the battery's gonna be gone one day and so um, yeah, battery management is something you just have to deal with with electronic sites. Um you know, I I don't know what to say. I've got an old Eotech and I've got a new Eotech and they're both awesome. So the Eotech is not junk. I don't know what this guy was doing in his shooting skoo SKOO. his shooting skoo and what what kind of nonsense they were they were doing um I have a and I've expressed it before I disdain a lot of and one of the things one of the things on this Facebook well there's always somebody who put, pick, puts up a picture of a CAG guy or a special operations guy CAG meaning that's what they call Delta Force now the combat applications group um, and say hey it's good enough for them it's good enough for me well I can tell this guy it's good enough for me because I physically fucking used it in the sandbox where this guy has not been to the sandbox alright here's our next question there seem to be a lot of high-end 2011's around it seems that in conventional wisdom this is the worst of two worlds a lot of the newer shooters don't like the 1911 and a lot of the older shooters don't trust nine millimeter so isn't this two bad things together and if so how can they be good you know, frankly, I don't know what the, the hoopla about the 2011s are. Um, if you want to shoot a 9mm, there's plenty of 9mm guns. Um, I look at it this way. Before I would buy a high-end 2011, and, and even the cheaper ones are like $1,500, uh, what are you using the gun for? It's. I have a funny feeling that a lot of this is game-driven. And in your game, if that's the best gun to use, then go ahead and buy it use it. For self-defense, I I have never been a fan of a super expensive defense gun, because if you actually use it, you know, it's going to wind up in the cop's evidence locker. You may or may not ever get it back and all that. If you're fantastically wealthy, I suppose it's okay. Um, But I just don't trust that. I just don't want that. So I, I tend to think that something a little more pedestrian, something replaceable, and something maybe a little less sumptuous is probably a better idea. If if I wanted just a super accurate nine millimeter, before I would buy a four or five thousand dollar twenty eleven, I would go buy what I have, which is a Sig P two ten target. Call it good. It's the the Sig P two target essentially has nineteen eleven controls. It's like shooting a nineteen eleven, and it's going to cost you a whole lot less. So I would buy that. Um if you actually have to have a double stack higher capacity um, I would go with the Browning high power which was the John Browning's answer he didn't know he was giving it but that's that's the the original 2011 would be the Browning high power I would go with that Um, to me there's a magic of the 45 ACP cartridge and the dimensions of the nine of the um, model 1911 pistol you know those things just go together just right so when you change it uh, 38 super you can kind of get away with that's like nine millimeter except it's for men Um, so you get 38 super and that's okay but really the 1911 platform is perfect for 45 acp and that's what it's designed for putting nine millimeter in it is it just seems to me like there's better nine millimeter options out there that are the browning eye power being the one that immediately jumps to my mind and the one that I would I would choose so there you go next question is 44 magnum a good caliber for self-defense if so why or why not um, 44 magnum is a great caliber for self-defense if you can shoot it I would not use full magnum loads they used to make I was talking with friend of the podcast about this they used to make a mid-range load that was a thousand feet per second two hundred and forty grain bullet uh, lead bullet and those were excellent Those were so excellent recoil management was great but it really had a good thump to it um, you know if you can find something like that or an equivalent hand load i think that's the way to go um, the other ones, the, the blast and the recoil are going to be a bit much but you know if you practice enough if you have enough money to practice enough um, you, can, you can manage it there have been people who've done it so you can't say that it's a, um, a bad idea but most people find something less would be a, a more optimal solution ok what is your opinion of current Savage Rifles? Um, I can't speak to the hunting rifles. I don't know anything about the the Axis. I don't really know anything about the new straight pool rifle they have. Other than, I'm kind of curious as to why anybody would want a straight pool rifle at this point um, in life. But um, anyway, I don't know. Any, I don't know about those. I do know that their precision rifles slash tactical rifles are excellent. And in fact really on the market they're probably my first choice right now because you can swap the barrel you can you can do a lot i mean they're not they don't they're not complete, they're not high end they're kind of a chevy solution but they're an excellent solution um i think that uh when it comes to bang for the buck savage tactical and precision rifles just hold their own so um yeah i would i would definitely uh go with that Next question, is the 68 by 51 the new hotness? I'd have to say no. I, I don't see a whole lot of rifles out there for it. I mean, I'm sure there are. You could probably make your own. I mean, um, here's going to be my deal. What's it going to do for you as a civilian shooter that a 7.62 NATO won't do? And you have to determine that. You have to determine if it's worth it to you because 7.62 NATO ammunition is going to be significantly cheaper and it's excellent performing. So you have really have to figure that out. But I'm sure there will be some guys who have to have it. Just like there were people who had to have the 6mm six, six millimeter arc and some of these other things. Um, you know, a lot of times practice can mitigate the theoretical advantage of something else so if you fire if you get routine practice with a 762 nato rifle you may be more effective than if you get sporadic practice with a 6.8 by 51 rifle because of the ammo cost okay next question is the svt-40 that's the soviet world war ii semi-automatic rifle comparable to the m1 rifle the answer to that is yes <laughs> yes uh, the SVT-40 is a, a good design in many ways a very good design and um, where it, it does not compare well to the M1 rifle is the sights are simple tangent so it, it doesn't it doesn't really compare well with the uh, the good peep sight the M1 rifle um, the trigger is not as good, in my opinion. It's it's a it's serviceable, but the M1 seems to have a what I consider a better trigger pull. The M1 also has a uh, um, superior loading, even though the the SVT has got detachable magazines. There, most of the time they were reloaded with Moissan the Gant five round stripper clips, so um, that. You know was not a great thing although i i think probably there was some there had to been some use of of uh um magazine interchange of you know magazines uh, carrying spare magazines but i don't think it was that widespread um other than that though the the svt is when you shoot the two side by side today you kind of realize that the svt was, the development stopped because they they weren't going to use it wasn't going to be the rifle that won the war because they couldn't produce enough of them and the German invasion forced them to move factories and really interrupted their production so it wasn't going to be the war winning rifle so development on it kind of stopped but it, it was a it was a great idea I mean uh, I think it's pretty cool I think it's actually very cool I enjoy shooting it I think it uh, it shoots. It was definitely a, a, a jump ahead, and had it been developed a little more, um, it would be very comparable. Uh, it would be yeah, nearly an equal to the M1. Who? Why is the the negant rifle referred to as a garbage rod? Because people are ignorant. They're super ignorant. the um, negant was one of the few early 1890s rifles to. Last through the entire bolt-action rifle period. It lasted from 1891 up into the you know mid 1950s, and even actually as a sniper rifle into the uh, 1960s. And you still see some of them out there today. You know, you see some in the early to- the early days of the Ukraine uh, war. You can see them, you know, around the world. They they were around. Um, They didn't just, it wasn't just because lots of them were produced, it's because it does everything it's supposed to do. Now, why does it not enjoy a great reputation like a U.S. rifle, like say the Springfield or even the 1917 Enfield? And the answer comes down to several different things, but one of the most important, I think, is ammunition. Uh, There was no real match-grade ammunition made for it. There was some sniper ammo, but... I don't even know how good that was but there was no really good match grade ammo made for it the other is that you know the bores did vary you know it was it was in production uh for 60 years and sometimes under very harsh and desperate wartime uh conditions so it it, it was very tough but it's it's actually actually an excellent rifle people who call it a garbage rod or idiots um they're probably hearkening back to the days when they could be found dirt cheap, and when things are inexpensive, people treat them like they're inexpensive. Now there's a new kind of a new reverence for them because you really can't buy one for less than three or four hundred dollars or five hundred bucks. So um, you know that the garbage rod will eventually that that designation will eventually go away. Here's our last question: Are shoulder holsters a good way to carry? uh i am not a good person to ask this because my build i'm not a very tall person five foot nine um and that was when they were measuring me what i am now is probably shorter but the last time i was measured i was measured at five foot nine so i'm not a tall guy um I was also doing some weightlifting and other kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit stocky. So a shoulder holster is not really ideal for me. I have used them. I love them. I think they're cool, but you know, if you're kind of a tall guy and thin, I think a shoulder holster is a lot easier and better to use. So I would say that, you know, depending on your body type, they can be decent. Uh, I think they've really kind of gone out of fashion in a lot of ways. Um, I don't really want to go into all the reasons why, but I think, um, you know, certainly belt holsters have taken over and shoulder holsters are just now kind of a niche cool thing. Blast from the past, you know. Carry your 44 Magnum like Dirty Harry. So that's kind of how I look at it. I do own a set. I will will admit to this. I had a uh, custom set made of dual 1911 shoulder holsters uh kind of similar to the uh, movie last man standing with Bruce Willis from the early 90s I I did it just because I thought it would be fun I had two 1911s I wanted the dual shoulder holsters like John Dillinger had just just for fun and so I got them so anyway that's it well this is it for the 166th episode of old school guns and again If you have any questions or comments, email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com, kbmakel at aol.com, or leave them in the the comments section on Podbean. And until next time, this is Old School Guns, out.